The time right now is 6 o'clock. Welcome to WORT's local news for Monday, September 4th, 2023. Happy Labor Day. I'm your host, Sam Swartz. And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. In tonight's news... We spotted many familiar faces at Labor Fest, and tonight we'll bring you the voices of local laborers. Plus, chemical engineers at UW-Madison open the door to recycling new types of plastic. Artists at a local nonprofit pick an unusual venue for their work. And some MMSD students will discover new foods when they head back to school this week. All these plus more on tonight's news. This is Sam Swartz and Rachel Fields with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. A University of Wisconsin-Madison think tank released a report on Friday that provided a snapshot of the Wisconsin economy over the past year. The Center on Wisconsin Strategy found that median wages did not keep up with inflation in 2022, with real wages falling by more than a dollar per hour on average. However, the racial pay gap in Wisconsin shrank, with black and Hispanic workers receiving pay increases that outstripped the pace of inflation on average. This is partially explained by the fact that pay for lower-wage jobs grew significantly faster than for higher-paying jobs, reports the Capital Times. Also of note is the declining participation of women in the workforce as the cost of childcare rises in the state. The Wisconsin Department of Health Services announced a new set of grant recipients on Thursday to install vending machines that distribute Narcan and fentanyl test strips as part of their ongoing efforts to reduce drug overdose deaths in Wisconsin. Madison Street Medicine and Tellurian Behavioral Health are two Madison area nonprofits who are recovering who are receiving money to install the new vending machines. That's according to the Wisconsin State Journal. Opioid deaths in Wisconsin have decreased slightly in the past year after spiking significantly in 2020 and 2021, with more than 1,400 deaths reported in the last year. More than 90% of deaths involve fentanyl or other synthetic opioids. Narcan can be an effective treatment and has been approved for over-the-counter purchase. An unusual summer storm at the Desert Festival Burning Man has left more than 70,000 people stranded and waiting for the mud to abate. A number of Wisconsinites are among those stranded, reports Fox 6 News Milwaukee, with traffic leaving the festival beginning to flow earlier this afternoon. A pair of Wisconsin maritime historians announced last week that they had found the underwater remains of a, sh- of a schooner that operated on Lake Michigan more than over 150 years ago. The schooner Trinidad operated as a grain freighter between Milwaukee and upstate New York before it sank near Algoma, Wisconsin in 1881. According to the Associated Press, sonar and historical accounts were used to find the site of the wreck, which is remarkably well-preserved. The Wisconsin Historical Society surveyed the site for historical artifacts and may choose to nominate the wreck to the National Register of Historic Places. The city of Madison announced on Thursday that it had been awarded a $6 million grant from the Federal Emergency Management Agency to fund an infrastructure project designed to prevent major flooding on Madison's far west side. The move comes after the city embarked on a multi-year study of its watershed in the aftermath of the disastrous flooding in 2018. The project will upgrade the size of storm sewers and increase the carrying capacity of greenways and ponds around the Pheasant Branch tributary near Excelsior Drive. The details of the project will be finalized over the next few years, with construction projected to begin in 2025. 
The Dane County Jail is once again open to visitors after a recent spike in COVID cases had prompted the jail to close its doors and suspend certain programs. The jail had over 50 residents come down with COVID in August, but by September 1st, they had only 10 residents who were COVID positive, reports WKOW. The jail announced that it would be resuming all normal activities in light of the reduced infection rates, including resuming visitations. A University of Madison, Wisconsin student is in critical condition after being attacked early Sunday morning near Brittingham Park, reports WMTV. A caller found the woman around 3 a.m. Monday morning on the 500 block of West Wilson Street, where she was taken to the hospital. The police are asking that anyone who lives in the area review their camera footage for anything that could help in the investigation. A new research project at UW-Madison will examine the way that pollinators carry microbes through cranberry marshes, reports, reports WPR. Wisconsin is the leading producer of cranberries in the nation, with demand increasing rapidly with the increased popularity of craisins over recent years. Cranberries are reliant on bees as pollinators, with growers often relying on commercially available bees to provide the needed pollination. And bees carry microbes, possibly beneficial ones, that help the berries stay healthy, but also possibly pathogens that infect the flowers and damage the crop. The new study does not yet have specific recommendations for farmers, but future research may add practical advice. A dock at the Memorial Union on Lake Mendota partially collapsed today when a large number of lake visitors were using it to catch the sun during the holiday, reports the Badger Herald. Dozens of people were dropped in the lake when the dock collapsed suddenly, with no major injuries reported. Some people swam to shore, while others were rescued by a small boat. And now, on to today's top stories. Madison's labor community celebrated Labor Day in style today, with beer, brats, music from VO5 and the periodicals, and even a bounce house. Of course, they were there for Labor Fest 2023. WORT news producer Faye Parks headed down to the Labor Temple for this update. Today's Labor Fest was buzzing with people, with the event just ending half an hour before this broadcast. Hundreds camped out under the hot September sun, some shaded by a giant striped tent. Others sat beneath their own tents, offering advice, updates, and even history on Dane County's labor advocacy. Some, like Erica Wills, are focused on education. I'm a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison School for Workers. We have non-credit classes that we do for union members, for workers in the community, free community classes, workers' centers, basically teaching workers about their rights in the workplace and connected issues. We teach everything from collective bargaining to labor law to workers' rights and labor history. Basically, anything worker side you want to learn about. This is for anyone who's interested. Any workers, they are non-credit classes, so students are welcome to take them, but they don't receive university credit for them. We have community classes that are free, that are oftentimes in uh, community centers and in the evenings. And then we do residential institutes on campus and other courses that there's uh, tuition and fee for and you sign up for in advance. So we're actually the oldest labor education program in the United States. We were founded in 1925 and we've been teaching continuously through that time. We also do research in labor topics. So we're really in the middle of a hot organizing strike and contract negotiations wave across the U.S. Everything from currently, I believe there's 330 organized Starbucks 
However, there's zero contacts so far because Starbucks has been massively union busting and refusing to come to the table. I think that that really opens our eyes to ways that we need to reform labor law and participate in the democratic process to be able to do that. When polls are done, it shows that actually there's record approval rates for unions and interests in unionization. However, one of the things that stands in the way is having an underfunded National Labor Relations Board for people who try to go through the traditional organizing and board election process to get recognition. Once you have union recognition and have an organized workplace, then you have the challenge of getting a first contract. And that's where, for instance, Starbucks workers are right now. And so when you have big, powerful companies like Starbucks who are refusing to come to the table and bargain in good faith and are committing what are called unfair labor practices, which are illegal violations, and not really, there's no financial penalty to that. There's no way that they're suffering. Uh, I think it, it brings into focus the need to create a system in which we have legislation that actually punishes people who refuse to bargain in good faith, who refuse to recognize workers' rights, and refuse to engage in the uh, process of having a workplace democracy. A lot of people who are newer to the workforce and worked through the pandemic have had workplace experiences where they've seen that the company won't necessarily take care of them. Spencer Schlanker is one young person involved in grassroots labor organizing. I'm with Madison Sourdough, I'm a bread baker, and we just recently unionized with the UFCW, Local 1473. Okay, and what are your goals in unionizing? A lot of us just want all of the normal workplace safety and retirement stuff that people should have at any workplace, and we have, you know, a decent job already, we just want everything written down in a contract. And has there been any response from your employer at all? So far, we have seen a lot of resistance in actually sitting down to bargain. So we don't meet very often. When we do, it's not for as long as we want. So what we're trying to do now is encourage management to start setting aside some real time to hammer out a contract. Because it's been months now, and we're still in the very early stages of negotiating a contract. Could you walk me through some of the specifics of what you're looking to bargain for? Yeah, one of the things that we want is to, for example, establish a workplace safety committee so we can talk about the things that are happening in the bakery so that people don't get hurt and so that people just feel safe doing their everyday jobs. And a lot of the normal response from management has been that they just want to take care of it. They don't want to have to be accountable for things like that. But, you know, we want a seat at the table for talking about stuff like that. With the UFCW, we've got Melanie, who is here today, who has been instrumental in helping us with negotiations because she's done it before. She knows all the lingo. She's been invaluable in terms of that. And initially, we worked with Justin, who was helping us with a lot of the early organizing stuff because for a lot of us, we've never done this kind of thing before. You know, we've just been bouncing from job to job, but now we have something that we can actually make into something that we want to stay at. So we've had a lot of issues with turnover, but recently we're trying to get people to feel like they can afford to stay at Madison Sourdough and become the bakers that they want to be. So it would be in Madison Sourdough's best interest then to support that? Absolutely, because at every workplace, when there's high turnover, it also means that they're spending tons of money and effort in training new people. And when you've got this revolving door of new bakers to train, quality suffers and quantity suffers. It's in everyone's best interest to have people that feel like they can stay at this job for the long term, you know? When they're in it for the long, for the long haul, everything is better. Gregory Jones has a bigger picture perspective. 
He's president of Dane County's NAACP and says that labor and race advocacy has always gone hand in hand. The NAACP and the labor movement go back years and years, decades. We have been focused loud and clear on three areas of concern relative to uh, equal rights. We will be heavily involved in the selection of the Madison Metropolitan School District Superintendent. We will be at the table. We will be involved in the meetings. We will be addressing those concerns and bringing forth community concerns and issues about our next superintendent, front and center on education outcomes. The next area that we're truly concerned about has a lot to do with criminal justice. We haven't seen through the data any sub substantial changes in the outcomes and incarceration rates for black men. So we're going to fight and coordinate, collaborate with all of our partners who are involved in criminal justice reform in Dane County. That's major and that's huge. And the third area I would mention is health care. We know that health care changes right now are significant to all individuals. We want to see fundamental changes in terms of the structure of health care, the outcomes of health care indices that affect people of color. Most importantly, we want to begin to educate our younger generation about the health care movement. We want to focus on individuals in the community, starting at the adolescence age, talking about health care maintenance, health care provision, health care outcomes. We want to provide that education to our younger folks so that they can carry it forward. The fundamental reason we do it, we are responsible for our own health care, but we have to know what's needed to have primary, secondary, and most importantly, uh, the health care needed to make a change in our communities. Brian Barber is an employee at CUNA Mutual, recently rebranded to TrueStage. He has been part of the months-long negotiations between TrueStage and their employees and has insight into the latest goings-on. It's been slowly evolving. We haven't made a, a whole lot of movement, uh, mostly because the company is pretty comfortable with where things are at. They're, they keep telling us that they're getting closer to their last best final offer. Um, they, they're not ready to give us their last best final offer yet, but they, they seem to be fine with the fact that this is going on for close to two years now. They went through a rebranding back in May uh, from CUNA Mutual Group to True Stage, so their new brand name is getting a lot of negative publicity and we think that that'll put additional pressure on them. Do you have an idea of what their main resistance is in terms of agreeing to your demands? Well, they're very resistant towards retroactive pay, for example, and, and the reason for that is seems more out of a sense of vindictiveness, just mainly because they're, they're upset about the fact that uh, True Stage union members have been portraying them in a negative light in the media, even though in reality what we've done is just pulled a mirror up to what they're doing. For a lot of us, this has been one of the most invigorating experiences of our lives. I mean, it's been great to see a large number of people go from being apathetic and in a state of inertia and just complacent to becoming courageous. You know, we had a lot of people go on strike and not, not, almost none of us had ever gone through that before in our lives. So it's really been kind of a transformative change for a lot of us that we've seen, in, including people on the bargaining team and stewards. You know, we, we've just, we feel like this has made leaders out of a lot of people who didn't expect to find themselves in that position. As is tradition, politicians also pulled up in style, featuring appearances from Dane County supervisors, local alders, and state politicians. Mayor Rhodes Conway says, I love Labor Fest. I come every year. Um, I've been a member of AFT Local 223 for a long time now, and so this is my people. 
Um, and it's great to be out here celebrating labor, celebrating organizing, and celebrating you know the sort of state of the economy for workers right now. Because although we still have a lot of challenges, we're seeing a lot of wins across the country, and uh, we have a, a administration in the White House that is really supportive of unions and is lining up federal policy to support unions. And so I'm I'm energized and excited. And is there anything going on, any any bargaining that you're interested in, any companies you want to keep an extra eye on? Well, we are always keeping an eye on who has got an organizing campaign going and um, trying to be supportive as we can um, here in the city. And so, yeah, there's a, a couple of uh, campaigns out there that, that we're definitely keeping our eye on, trying to be supportive. Um, obviously, the SEIU work has been really important. Um, the OPEIU as well as doing some great organizing and um, I don't know who it is it's taken on Starbucks but God bless them um, <laughs> that's amazing so yeah so we we really try and be supportive of labor in the community whenever we can because everybody deserves uh, a good job and good working conditions and good wages absolutely and is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners yeah I just really encourage folks to uh, to engage with organized labor and to support workers in our community the general mood today was hopeful and energized. Everyone I spoke with agreed that there's a long fight ahead, but workers are more organized and more motivated than ever. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. It's now 6.23 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Well, the enormity of laborers and issues couldn't be contained to just one reporter's trip to LaborFest, so we sent News Director Shally Pittman to the Labor Temple 2 to ask workers on their day off how this LaborFest is different, what labor issues they're negotiating, and what awakened them to the labor movement. But first, Bratwurst. Working the line, slinging Bratwurst, hot dogs, rice and beans, and corn. And condiments. My name is Jack Weitzel. I'm the executive director of the South Central Wisconsin Billing Trades Council. So we represent all of the union construction trades in, in the Madison area and the surrounding counties. I came out of the painters union, so I was a painter and a wallpaper hanger, um, and I was going through my apprenticeship when I started at the Billing Trades Council. So now um, we have a full-time position here, which is me. Painting is rough. Do you have a comment on how painting is rough? Yes. Oh yeah, I uh, you know when I first started I thought oh, no, I've painted a house before, but you know uh, commercial painting is not the same at all. <laughs> it's very different. Uh, but why why are you at Labor Fest? Yeah, Labor Day is the best day of the year. We get to celebrate the sacrifices that working people made for for the United States and and from the construction industry. You know we we're the people that built Madison, so it's exciting to be here and celebrate those workers that did that. What are some of the issues that you're facing in this industry? Well, I would say, you know, we're all working towards capturing all of the infrastructure uh, money from the from Biden's, all of Biden's infrastructure bills and everything. So that's what we're working on right now. Um, 
working on a lot of green energy projects throughout Wisconsin and especially in Dane County here and you know um, just working on those those couple of items right now. Are there any significant like contract negotiations that you have to share recently or? I guess currently with our, our state workers, uh, we're bargaining for them right now with the CPI being at 8%. So that's what our initial ask is and continues to be. They came back with a 4% offer and that was rejected by the bargaining unit. So all three bargaining units rejected it. So we're going to be back at the bargaining table with the state of Wisconsin to uh, get, our, get our workers the 8%. <laughs> My name is Joe Meinzer representing uh, Steam Fairs Local 601 here in Madison. The industries we work in is any uh, sort of like commercial piping, uh, any process piping uh, having to do with petrochemical industry, pharmaceutical, breweries, things like that that have piping systems. Okay. Tell me more about um, what you do. What does your day look like? I work a lot of natural gas systems and weld that piping systems together that carry natural gas across the state. That seems like really dangerous work. Uh, it can be if things go sideways, yeah. How did you get get into this industry? Oh, I knew, I knew people that were in it. I just signed up. They might make it good money, and I wanted to be part of it. Were you an apprentice and then learned that way, or? Yeah, I did, yeah, I did a pre-apprenticeship in Milwaukee, yeah. Do you have anything you want to add about why people should become a steam fitter? Well, I think it's a, it's a good choice for people that like to work with their hands and do different kinds of things. You can go anywhere in the country and do this work, so it can be uh, get, get a wide variety of experiences, and it uh, can be real interesting, but real challenging, so. I mean, do you want to tell me why you're at Labor Fest today? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm here at Labor Fest helping out uh, our business agent, Neil Sikich, uh, to pass out t-shirts and stuff for the members and uh, food and drink tickets as be uh, part, of the, part of the party. My name is Frida Ballard, that's F-R-I-D-A. Um, I work at Worker Justice Wisconsin. I've been here for over a year as a worker organizer. So my position is the co-op side of the organization. So we incubate a couple of co-ops every year, and that's our program that we have ongoing. Currently, we're, if you see my shirt right here. Describe your shirt for me. Yeah, so it is art by John uh, Fleischner. He's an artist out of Milwaukee and a, and a public school teacher. And they were printed by Shaky Hands Co-op, which is a, a union co-op in Milwaukee. And we're trying to expand that into Madison. There's still an ongoing one. Uh, last year, they they won their union election. They're currently negotiating with the Painters Union for their first contract. And they're actually doing a press conference on the 12th. But the employer is like, will not negotiate fairly. Um, also doesn't know what he's doing. And currently, he's trying to rebrand and like evade everything. So um, he's up to some bad stuff, but we're aware of it. So that's one of the co-ops that we're incubating. And the second one is a food cart named El Chisme. They do a lot of catering events, and they also are on Raymond Road in Whitney Way, you know, 5 to 8 p.m. Um, and they're trying to expand into food trucks so they can extend their, their selling season. Okay, so you organize co-ops. Uh, tell me about the other arms of what Worker Justice does. Yeah, so uh, Robert Chris over here is a program director, and his focus is on service industry. So he has a, a few different spots that he's organizing, 
Um, and then Daniela Jaime is our construction organizer, so she does site visits, she works with a lot of other organizations, and uh, more than anything is trying to battle the misclassification in the construction industry. Tell me more about that. Yeah, so misclassification is essentially when a worker that should be an employee is incorrectly classified as a contractor, and that denies them the right to get their wages back through the DWD. It means that they are responsible for their own workers' comp and their own taxes and liability insurance. So you have all this responsibility that shouldn't actually be on them. You know, I've been asking people here who are maybe a little bit younger, what was your labor awakening and why are you here? Yeah, so I suppose mine was Previous to this, I was doing healthcare interpreting. Um, and so a lot of the clients that I saw were in Dodgeville, working on dairy farms. And they had a lot of workplace accidents and they had a lot of workplace related issues that they would freely tell me about. Um, and I felt really helpless because uh, my role as an interpreter was very limited. Um, and then when I found about Worker Just Wisconsin and I, I wanted to get involved immediately because yeah, it's like, you know, it is good to interpret, like that still has to be done. But it feels a lot better to uh, to actually have a uh, like an active role in changing the conditions of the of our immigrant community. Awesome. All right. Well, is there um, anything else that you'd like to kind of add? Yes. If there's any congregations that are also wanting to like participate with us, we do a labor in the pulpits every year, and we just had them um, yesterday. We we're just speaking out a bunch of congregations. So, uh, yeah. Tell me more about that. Yeah. So we're an interfaith organization because we find that we can tell workers, especially you know immigrant workers, all day long about the protections of organizing. But if they don't feel that their faith supports that, they won't do it. Um, and so we try to really actively reach out to different faith communities so that they can support the workers that we are organizing. So that's uh, we speak at a few congregations every year. Um, yeah, so if there's any other congregations that are, are wanting to be a part of this, like we'd love to talk about labor with them. Well, and, and give us your website where people can find more. Yeah, we can find us at workersjustice.org. Do you want to go ahead and tell me your names and who you're representing today? Yeah, my name's Mona. I'm a bavista at State Street, and I'm here with Starbucks Workers United. My name is Allie, and I also work at the Starbucks on State, Starbucks Workers United. All right, well, you guys have had a lot of labor action happening at that Starbucks. You want to give our listeners a little bit of a summation of what's happening there? So we won our vote in early July. Um, we're really excited, but so far corporate hasn't come to the table to bargain with us. We are considering our next steps. Um, so far what's happened is we've had a change in management at our store, and they're starting to tighten things up. Um, we have heard through the grapevine that our district manager wants to hold a decertification vote in the spring. Um, so right now we're working really hard on keeping everybody at our store feeling really good and really strong about our movement um, and trying to really work on morale. At State Street in particular, one of the big things is safety. Um, because we're such an urban store, we do see a lot of people coming in and out and using our facilities for things like, unfortunately, drug use. Um, and we find things like used needles in our store. Um, right now, corporate is telling us that we can't have a sharps container to dispose of those things. They're also telling us that we can't have Narcan on site to literally save people's lives. So those are two things that we're working really hard for at our store in particular. And I know Workers United is advocating for higher pay and better safety overall nationwide. Um, but those are the things that are really important to us at State Street. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything else you'd like to add? 
Um, we love community support. Anything you guys can do, we might be thinking about taking some pretty severe action coming up. So any support the community can give for something like a strike um, would be super helpful. We also have a no coffee, no contract pledge that people can sign. Um, just by Googling that, they should be able to find it. My name yeah. is Andy Kisting. I'm the vice president of IATSE 251, which is International Alliance Theatrical Stage Employees, the Madison chapter. And I've been with this union for about 32 years. We have the Overture Center. We work at the Barrymore, the Monona Terrace, the Coliseum, the Action Center. We work at the Fluno Center and AV, the My Arts Building, most of campus, um, university with the Cole Center, the stadium, the field house. So if it happens and it rotates, we change it and you don't see us. So we're in all of those venues and uh, I'd appreciate it if you want to work for us, so look us up. <laughs> How does one get into working as a stagehand? Um, we have a local chapter in Madison. Our office is out of the Madison Labor Temple. Um, you can reach us online at IATSE, that's I-A-T-S-E 251.com, and just uh, put your name and email in there, and our business agent, Justina Vickerman, will get back to you. Um, I'm currently at the Labor Temple till four today, if you want to come down for that. Um, but uh, we generally just ask you a few questions, and. Um, you do have to be 18 or older to work for us because it's an industrial job. We do rigging, which means we climb on very big buildings. Um, we unload semis for a living, so you do have to definitely be 18 for this job. But we would invite anybody who wants a part-time job to come. It's You can be on call with us. Um, we are looking for extra people right now, and we encourage you to apply. Okay, and so what is one thing that people might not understand about or may have a misconception about? being a stagehand? So when we always tell people we're the theatrical union, they first think of uh, actresses. Or in my case, I'm female, they think of me as a wardrobe tech, a hair and makeup person, which I am, all of those. But um, I have a tech theater degree from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and a bachelor's, which means that I can do um, welding, plumbing, electrical work. I can do uh, stage management. I can do carpentry, uh, scenic painting, sewing, costume building, hair, makeup. So our degree encompasses all of that. I think a lot of times people think theater and they think of the overture. But the other gigs, we do rock concerts. A bunch of our staff just went to Pink and helped in Milwaukee. We went to Chicago Local 2 and we helped do Lollapalooza. So we put up all the stages for the concerts in the Midwest. Several of our members have actually worked the Super Bowl at halftime. So we're all over the place, and we would love to have new people come join us. <laughs> and, oh, I had one more question for you. Oh, safety. Do you have any comments about safety, or just how do your uh, members stay safe when they're on the job, or do you have anything to share there? Our international, um, around 2010, did not like what happened with the um, different venues that had problems. We had the one venue down south that had a tornado go through, and people were injured and killed. Vegas shooting incidents, another good example. Um, so with all that going on, our International Lobby Congress to get us OSHA training. So now we have OSHA 10 and OSHA 30, which addresses some of these concerns. They teach us to be personally safe as well as industrial safe. So we have rigging training, we have electricians training, we have certifications, we have forklift certifications, um, staging certifications. So there's just things that people don't see that we do to get our um, industry uh, into the 20th century. Before, everybody just kind of trained a person they knew, and now there's more formal education. 
Um, I know the OSHA person internationally traveled with all the different groups for a year overseas and not overseas and then he came back and the first thing he said is I want to know how you're not all dead yet because our industry is really highly dangerous and most of it and I said it's because whether we like the person we're standing next to or not we want to go home at the end of the day and we make sure that we're safe so the person next to us is safe and I think a lot of times industries get casual or lazy with their safety rules and then accidents happen so I was really glad to see our international you know got on the ball right away to start preventing all of these tragedies from happening on the work site and even in 2023 we're still working at it to make sure it still stays strong. For WORT News I'm Sholly Pittman and here's longtime progressive broadcaster Sly. I've been coming here for the last 20 some years there's nothing better than saluting the efforts of working people in South Central Wisconsin. It's really a tradition and this is the first time I've been back in four years because of COVID and last year I couldn't make it because I was having surgery the next day. So it's it's great. It's seeing a lot of long lost friends and even though it's not an election year, uh, so much is going on right now. There's been a great labor awakening with young people. I can't tell you how different that is than even five years ago and it gives me hope for the future. So that's why I'm here. All right. Well, how is this different, this attendance different than past years that you've been here? Attendance looks a little lighter, but it is early. It, it is true that attendance is always bigger in election years. A, the, a lot of politicians show up and take up a lot of air here, but obviously not being an election year. But there's a there's kind of a heavy cloud hanging over this uh, because the Republicans threatening to impeach Justice Protosewitz. It's uh, I don't I'm not sure everybody has figured out what a big deal that is, but we're getting ready to go to war again. Well, I have to ask people here today how they feel about that. What what have people said to that today? I haven't I haven't talked to anybody about it yet uh, here that's here today. Um, if it isn't on their radar screen, it should be. Anything else you want to add, Sly? Thanks for what Wart does. Madison wouldn't be Madison without Wart. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories coming up for you in the second half of the show. We'll hear about a new recycling process, follow up on the land art exhibit at a local green cemetery, and hear from a UW researcher on healthy school lunches. But now we'll take a quick break. Back in a flash. Hello, I'm Ruthie McQuinn. I'm here with the Krauss Family Band. Hi! And we're looking forward to sharing some music and stories with you from my new solo record, Ruthenium, on the Access Hour right here on WORT, Monday, September 4th, from 7 to 8 p.m. The record is all original music with special appearances from the Krauss Family Band, Hi. the Brothers Quinn, Slipjig, and J.P. Sear and the Rambling Kind. WORT thanks its listener sponsors and Five Nines, a locally owned cloud service provider of enterprise level IT infrastructure consulting, hosting, and management services. On the web at fivenines.com. Phone number 512 1000.
The time right now is 6.40, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz, here with my co-host, Rachel Fields. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. A team of chemical engineers at UW-Madison say they found a new recycling process that could breathe new life into plastics we'd normally throw away. The process works by turning low-value plastics into high-value liquids, and with that could come reduced greenhouse gas emissions. WORT reporter Charlie Bielowski caught up with one of the researchers. George Huber is the Richard Antoine Professor of Chemical Engineering at UW-Madison. He's also the director of the Center of Chemical Upcycling of Waste Plastics, or CUWP. That organization, funded by the Department of Energy, was established three years ago to find better ways of recycling plastics. Now, he and a team of postdoctoral researchers have found one new process that could upcycle plastic waste. If applied commercially, the new process could reduce greenhouse gases that would normally be produced in plastics manufacturing. He says that the process relies on an existing chemical technique of melting down plastic. It's called pyrolysis. The first step is you take the plastic and then you heat it to about 500 degrees Celsius without any oxygen. Make sure there's no air in there. If you have air in there, you'll burn it. And then it's really for 120 seconds, you heat it to that temperature. And then the the plastic will thermally decompose to make an oil. And that's what we call a pyrolysis oil. From there, the oil is then processed through a process called hydroformulation. You take the oil, you add carbon monoxide, hydrogen, and a catalyst, and then you make what's called an aldehyde. And then there's lots of chemistry you can do with that aldehyde. You can make alcohols from it. You can make carboxylic acid. and, and, And those can be used to make a wide range of materials, surfactants other plastics, uh, other materials as well. He says that using this new process, engineers can transform low-quality plastics into soaps, detergents, polyesters, and even agricultural chemicals. That's a big deal for an industry that currently recycles very little plastic. A 2022 report issued by Greenpeace found that only about 6% of plastics are actually recycled at least once. Huber says the new process has the potential to completely change the industry. Our products have a 70 to 80% lower greenhouse gas emissions than making these same products from um, petroleum. So there's a huge impact in terms of your greenhouse gas emissions for using waste plastics as opposed to drilling new oil and making these products from uh, raw oil. The other question is what do you do with those waste plastics? You know, there's a huge environmental impact to use them to make something that's useful rather than landfilling them, burning or burning them or you know, releasing them into the environment. Huber adds that his team is already in discussions with some manufacturers to apply the technique, but there's still some fine-tuning to do before they scale up to commercialize the technology. That could be a big deal for Wisconsin, which, according to researchers, is ranked eighth in the nation for plastics industry employment, topping 43,000 people in the industry. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Charlie Bielowski. This Saturday, nine artists participating in a land art exhibit at a green cemetery in Verona will be welcoming the public to view the biodegradable art pieces they've created on the paths winding through the the Natural Path Sanctuary. WORT contributor Gil Halstead has more. More than 20 artists have collaborated to create pieces in the sanctuary in this exhibit that runs through the end of October. Efrat Livni has taken part in all of them, and each time she has created a piece that provides an opportunity for a community gathering beside the spot where she will one day be buried. The tree that I chose that spot for, which was a magnificent tree at the 
a place where many paths meet, um, has died. And I know that it's not going to be long before it will have to at least lose some of its limbs. And I decided that this year I would honor the tree itself as as the the focus point of the installation. And when I looked at the tree, I could see this benevolent being sort of hovering over the spot. So what came to me is to make the tree into um, the Kuan Yin, which is the goddess in the Hindu lore of compassion and mercy, and have the tree be an invitation for people to come forward to sit a while and bring um, what is in, in them to be heard. I asked Efrat if creating her piece at this spot was an opportunity to rehearse her own funeral. It's not exactly creating a funeral for myself, but it is doing that which I do in life that I hope will also see me off, which is community. I love bringing people together for conversations that are meaningful and bring something into one's awareness that wasn't there before they entered a space and sat with others. So it is the big rehearsal probably for my own memorial, (laughs) although I never really thought about it that way. But maybe it's the big rehearsal for all of our memorials because at the end, we really want to be known and we want to be heard. We want to be seen. And so this is practice, um, a practice of being heard and seen in community. Efrat says while the tree is the focus of this art piece, she's added to it. What I've added to the tree is basically um, a head, the head of Kuan Yin, sort of a little tilted looking down from the crook of the two main branches that are that are going upwards. And the head is made out of a, uh, a cow pelvis, which I found while kayaking. It's intact, and it actually has eyes. <laughs> it really does have that feeling of something looking down at you. And then on the arms that are spread out, because Kuan Yin has many arms, so there are six of them that I can tell, four pointing up and two sort of coming across. And on those, um, I have hung strands of burlap sacks. And sacks in the Old Testament were always used when mourning was the occasion why people gathered. And so I looked for burlap, and I found a lot of... um, Well, I was fortunate enough to get burlap sacks from coffee roasters. So Kuan Yin is called She Who Hears the Cries of the World. And these coffee sacks, I've already counted 12 countries, and the sacks are made in India, making it 13 countries. So the world is represented in these prayer flags. Efrat has titled her piece, She Who Hears the Cries of the World, and she intends it to be a gathering place. She'll be holding gatherings there on five different occasions during the exhibit that ends on October 31st. I am asking people to let me know that they're coming because I am trying to keep the gatherings to a small enough group to have a good opportunity for a deeper conversation. So um, I'm just asking people to email me and let me know what circle they intend to come to. At that point, I will send more details about you know, what to expect, how to arrive, Etc. You can reach Efrat at Efrat at at threshold.com 
or text her at 608-220-8849. She'll also be selling some of her art this Saturday during the opening reception and tour at the sanctuary. For more information about the exhibit, look for it on Facebook at Farley Center Land Art Exhibit or the Farley Center website, farleycenter.org. I'm Gil Halstead. It's now 6.49 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Healthy school meals are a vital source of nutrition for Wisconsin's K-12 students. But as worker recruitment, retention, and compensation becomes more of a challenge, it's harder to provide these meals reliably. A study from UW Associate Professor Jennifer Gaddis conducted this summer discusses the politics and practice of healthy school lunches. To learn more, WORT's Andy Moore spoke with Professor Gaddis on last Friday's 8 o'clock buzz. Good morning, Professor Gaddis, and welcome to the Friday buzz. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. I, I want to ask you to get into the history of school lunches in a moment, but first, if you were talking with a visitor from another country, how would you describe the ways and means of the school lunch program in the U.S. right now? Well, I would say that we have a very fractured federal program and that there was this massive experiment, which was like kind of the dream come true for a lot of people who work in school nutrition, which is that during the pandemic, we got to feed all children free school meals. So everyone could have a meal at no cost, just like when you go to school, you know, you don't pay for math class or English class, like at the point of service. So that was something that we got to do for two years. And now there are actually eight states, Illinois is about to be the ninth, that are continuing to provide free school meals to all students. We're actually kind of surrounded here in Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, Minnesota, and soon to be Illinois will be doing this. But it's really something that across the majority of states, we've reverted back to this old model of free, reduced, and paid meal statuses where students are sort of sorted based on their household income. So I think we're at a point where a lot of the kind of divisions that we see in terms of economic class are really reproduced in our school lunchrooms. And that's something that really isn't necessarily always true in other countries where they mm-hmm. have universal school meal programs. I so, want to get to um, um, the topic yeah. specifically of free lunches and, and, and mm-hmm. your, your sort of, the, the agenda and your scholarship there. You, you suggested this in your answer just a moment ago, but take us back to the origin, if you would, of school lunches. What was it about way back? Yeah, so way back in the 1890s, so what we often refer to as the progressive era, there were attempts to create affordable, nutritious, healthy, safe school meals for students. And it was seen as partly a charitable enterprise to make sure that students from working class families and immigrant families had access to affordable, nutritious meals. And a lot of those meals were served at no cost through philanthropy. But um, they also would serve what would be called like penny lunches. So basically just um, very low cost meals for students whose families could afford to pay for the lunches. And that was really seen as a way to offer more of a convenience to families because back in those days, it was certainly difficult. And I think some um, parents and caregivers certainly resonate with this again today, that it can be difficult to pack a, you know, a nutritious, appetizing, exciting school lunch day in, day out, and have it actually you know, stay fresh and all the textures and temperatures kind mm-hmm. of be what you want them to be when the student's actually eating them. So a lot of those same issues and concerns about access to food really uh, over 100 years ago were what motivated the program. And they really wanted school meals to be 
universal, meaning that they were something that all students would be able to participate in mm-hmm. in the school and really linked to education. So mm-hmm. um, at the time, school gardens like John Dewey, this idea of experiential education and really involving students in math and science and learning about culture through mm-hmm. food were really all part of the dream as was this idea of being able to provide safer and higher paid jobs for working class women who otherwise would maybe be working mm. in factories that weren't very heavily regulated at the time. I see. It's so, an interesting um, coupling then the right thing. there yeah. between <laughs> the labor movement and, and, and schools and nutrition. Absolutely. Professor Gaddis, you used the words real, real food in the title of, of the book. Next Tuesday, when children sit down at the noontime table, what will they see for their school lunch? Well, so here in Madison, I think that there has been a lot of effort to work on improving the quality of school meals, but they're somewhat limited at the elementary schools because, so basically, I I should mention in the history of the National School Lunch Program that our federal program was created in 1946, and there have been some communities that never really have had kitchen infrastructure on site at the schools, and that's very much the case here in Madison, that the elementary schools do not have the on-site kitchens that would really be required to do true scratch cooking, um, which is really, I think, one of the things that a lot of people think about when they think about real food is this idea of food being fresh and culturally relevant and local sourcing and that kind of thing. So Mm -hmm. in Madison, I think one thing that is exciting that people will see at the elementary level is the return of the garden bars. So actually earlier this week, um, myself and Josh Perkins, the MMSD Food Nutrition Director, were at several of the back-to-school events uh, sampling some new recipes So we did um, a brown rice and chana masala chickpea at one of the middle schools and at the elementary schools, we are sort of exposing people to the garden bars, which are essentially like a salad bar that serves um, fresh fruits and vegetables that uh, the schools had before the pandemic that had been kind of shut down for the last few years. So the entrees at the elementary school will still be like coming from the central kitchen. So people should still expect to see basically the pre-packed meals, usually one hot, one cold option, but a lot more fresh fruits and vegetable options this year. But mm-hmm. the overall goal is to eventually try to move toward more scratch cooking. And that's something that the middle school and the high school levels oftentimes mm-hmm. across the district have a lot more capability to do because they across the district have a lot more infrastructure and staffing to do that kind of cooking. So you've actually um, shared yeah. some news with us uh, this morning. My, my yeah. wife, who was a Madison public school teacher, was was lamenting the disappearance of, of the so-called what did you call it? Garden Garden Gar- yes, yeah. or salad bar yeah. pre, uh, you know, once COVID hit, and now it's it's, right. uh, it's it's interesting and positive to learn that that there will be a return of that. COVID had another impact on trajectory and the evolution of school lunches and free school lunches as well. Something uh, that was a program where the clock ran out, having to do with free lunch. Talk about that. Yes, so we did have federal waivers that allowed all schools to offer free breakfast and lunch to students during the pandemic, and those waivers expired last summer, so in summer of 2022, so that's why when people returned to school last year, Um, in Madison, most people would have experienced this return to needing um, to pay for school meals if they didn't qualify for free or reduced price lunches. But there are about 17 schools in the Madison Metropolitan School District that are able to still offer free school meals to all students through something called the community eligibility provision. 
So those are schools where basically there's a high enough percentage of students who qualify for free and reduced meals that through this federal program, the um, district is able to provide meals to all families and all students um, free of charge. So that's definitely something in those schools where we're encouraging people to really take advantage of that program. And especially, you know, on a given day, if um, a student um, maybe doesn't like the specific entree options that are being offered with the return of the garden bars, if they, for example, take three out of the five components Mm -hmm. of the school meal. So that could be um, maybe they take some broccoli and strawberries and a milk, and then they bring like a sandwich from home because Mm -hmm. they've taken three components and one is a fruit or a vegetable that would still actually count as a free meal. So I think that the garden bar is definitely something that bringing that back um, gives people a lot more opportunities to either participate in the full program, Mm -hmm. taking kind of all the components of the meal, um, or maybe taking certain components if the entree isn't something that they're excited to eat on that given day. You've mentioned the benefits uh, here and there uh, of a universal uh, free lunch program. And it's just a little less than a minute that we have left. Summarize the, the, the overall benefits of a universal free program and, and how, how can we get there? Sure. So research shows that school meals are actually the healthiest meals that children eat. So on average, um, the school meals are healthier than what families might be packing from home. So there's definitely that in terms of nutrition. I think it also helps to improve school climate when all students um, are participating in the program because a lot of times um, what you'll find currently is that students from more middle class and upper middle class households who don't qualify for free meals often are bringing meals from home. And so then you can kind of see you know, more of this divide um, in the cafeteria spaces about who might be lower income versus mm-hmm. higher income um, mm-hmm. in the district. Yes. And also you can really do a lot more with food education and linking um, what's served in the cafeteria to curriculum when everyone is kind of eating the same stuff. We see that happen in a lot of different countries. And lastly, I would also say that um, universal school meals do tend to increase participation in school meal programs, which brings more revenue into the program. Hmm. And so when you have higher participation and you have higher revenue, that means that you can actually spend more money on things like higher quality ingredients and paying workers Uh uh, for more hours of labor or higher wages, which are all the kinds of things that you really need to do in order to be able to serve the kind of high quality, fresh, um, culturally relevant meals that I would consider to be quote unquote real food. It all makes so much sense. And I hope that that is not the reason (laughs) that it gets in the way of that kind of progress. Jennifer Gaddis, it's fascinating. Thank you for joining us uh, on this important topic on the Friday Buzz this morning. Thank you so much for having me. And if I could just say one quick thing, um, I forgot you asked me how people could help. We have a Healthy School Meals for All coalition in Wisconsin. So if people go online and just Google Healthy School Meals for All Wisconsin, they can be brought to that website and um, people can help with the state level advocacy to try to make this happen in Wisconsin Excellent. As well. Thank you, Professor Gaddis. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Jennifer Gaddis is an associate professor in the UW-Madison School of Human Ecology. Her book is called The Labor of Lunch, Why We Need Real Food and Real Jobs in American Public Schools. And that does it for our show. Thank you for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Your reporter was Charlie Bielowski. Special thanks to feature contributors Gil Halstead and Andy Moore. Victor Calzoni engineered this show. Faye Parks produced this newscast. And Shally Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. And I'm your host, Sam Swartz. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. 
Up next is the most freeform show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Have a great night. We need money for new cables. Okay, one more time. I'm a guinea pig. Happy Labor Day. All right.